We're going to be in John 20, verses 1 through 10. And the title is, The Meaning of the Resurrection. Let's just go ahead and read those 10 verses together. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first, and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple, who had first come to the tomb and then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they had not they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their homes. Let's pray. Father, um, we can spend our whole lives meditating on these truths. I pray this morning that we would make progress, even though it might seem minor, but that we would understand even just a little bit more of what the resurrection means. There's no way for us in our finite bodies and our um, limited minds to fully grasp any of these things. And you've chosen to reveal more than we can learn in a lifetime. And so this morning we just ask for one step closer, one, one small piece of the puzzle to fit so that we can grow closer to you, that you can awaken our soul to life. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So after doing this for more than a year, it should be obvious to all of us kind of the, the style that I do for teaching. It's not going to be any different this morning. Um, I like to first explain a little bit about the verses. I'm not going to be able to explain everything, but explain enough to kind of get our mind into the, that setting. I feel like it's the best way to really understand what, what God is trying to say to us through the text is to, to try to put our mind into what the context is and then read it from there. And so after I do that, then I kind of bring out some points of application and then I kind of, I conclude with kind of what I think is the, sort of the big picture theme in the verses. So the big theme that I see in these verses as we go into these next couple of chapters is, you know, life after the resurrection. Christ is now risen and we next week we're going to look more specifically at Jesus' interactions with, with Mary and with the disciples, and we're going to start looking at that. This week, though, I just wanted to briefly go over some of the context and then spend the rest of the time just explaining in general some of the meanings behind the resurrection, more than we might have heard before, um, before we get into the next week, into the different interactions of the people and stuff. So looking at verses 1 and 2, um, we're going to do some, con- some context stuff. Um, Mary Magdalene. She wasn't alone, even though she appears alone here in Mark 16. It says that there are two other women with her, and they both came to the tomb. They all came to the tomb together. Uh, So with her was Salome and someone named Mary, the mother of Jesus. Um, This Mary Magdalene, she was one of Christ's followers. 
She's mentioned at least 12 times in the four Gospels, which is more than some of the apostles are mentioned. Uh, in Luke 8, we read that Jesus, when he was going around from village to village with his 12 disciples, there were also some women that would travel with them. It says that all of these women had been healed of evil spirits. And it says specifically that Mary had been healed of seven evil spirits. And these women, they, they followed the disciples around, and they helped to support them from their own means. So they'd given all to follow Jesus. She was one of his followers just as much as any other follower. Um, she was a witness to his crucifixion and to his burial. She, she was there. And now, here we see she's one of the first witnesses of the resurrection. And in verse 27, next week we'll see she's the first one sent to preach the resurrection. She has to go preach to the apostles <laughs> the resurrection. What an honor. Um, and so we're going to see that next week. And then um, verses 3 through 8. We see this thing about how, you know, they're both running. Peter hears this, and he, so he goes forth. But the other one, who's John, because he never names himself. So John ran ahead faster than Peter to the tomb. So John is giving very precise details here about these events. They started out together. One went faster than the other. One got there first but didn't go in. The other gets there and then goes in. Then the first goes in. What, what is the point of all of these details? Well, I think... The first thing is very precise details in a testimony give it credibility. When you can remember stuff like that, very specific details, it, it gives credibility to what you're saying. And John wants to make sure we understand that this stuff actually happened. It's like last week when he was saying, I was there, I saw him die, I saw them pierce him, I know it was true because I saw it with my own eyes. So he's being very precise for that reason. I have to wonder though, there's also a bit of uh, humor going on here. You know, these disciples have known each other for a long time. They've been together for a long time. And so John makes it a point to make sure everyone knows he beat Peter to the tomb. He, he ran faster and got there first. I think maybe there's some humor in that. I don't know for sure, but it sounds that way to me. Um, and then it says at the end of verse 8 that they entered the tomb and they saw and they believed. That doesn't mean believe in the resurrection because it says in the next verse they, they did not yet understand that. It just means here they believe what Mary said. Mary came and told them. They ran. They saw with their own eyes and they believed that the tomb was empty. At this point, Mary hadn't seen him yet either. She just said to them, they've taken him away and we don't know where, they, where he's gone. So even now, they still don't understand yet that he will rise. And Notice um, the specific language here. In verses 9 and 10, it says, For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise. So first, he, they didn't understand. That, that shouldn't surprise us. We're told often that the disciples didn't understand what he was saying right away. A lot earlier, many, many, many months ago when we were first starting this, at one point Jesus says, Destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again. And the Pharisees are like, hey, this took you know, however long to build this temple and you can raise it up again in three days. And it says they didn't understand that he was talking about himself dying and raising. So this whole time he's been talking about this. And even though he's been mentioning his crucifixion and his resurrection the whole time, we saw just a few weeks ago that Peter was still saying, Far be it, Lord, you're, you're not going to be crucified. I'm not going to let him take you away. They didn't really understand all these things yet. And now look at this. They didn't understand that he must rise. I think John's phrasing here is really important. He didn't say they didn't understand that he would rise. They, they didn't understand that um, he said 
he would rise. It says they didn't understand that he must rise. So why this word? Why must? Why is there a necessity here? Did he have to rise? And this is what I want to spend the rest of today looking at, the, the necessity of the resurrection. I don't think the church does a good enough job often enough thinking about this, at least not in my experience. Too often when we hear the resurrection, we talk about what it proves and not necessarily what it means. So as far as what it proves, you might have heard this, even my kids might have heard this, Jesus claimed that he would raise, and then he did. That proves something about himself. So when you look at the historical nature of this, the fact that it really did happen, and you look at the lives of the apostles, how they died for this, and, and all the evidence surrounding even the external biblical evidence about the fact that it did actually happen, that proves something about Jesus and about Scripture and about God. It, it proves something, and it's very useful and very valuable to, to consider those things, especially when talking with the world. When talking with unbelievers, the resurrection is one of the, one of the foundational things that when people really understand this, it can lead them to faith for real because it's, it's hard to deny the evidence that this happened. And if it did happen, that must mean that what he was saying about himself is true. It must mean the Bible is true. It must mean God is real. It's a miracle. And so that there, it's useful to do that. But all of this is what it proves and not really what it means. Because see, if you're an unbeliever, it doesn't matter to you what it means. It, it, it won't matter until you're already convinced that it's true. So as long as you're an unbeliever, um, you're not really looking for what does it mean that Christ raised. You're looking for, did this actually happen? And so um, this was kind of an enlightening thing from this week because for, for me, in my own life, I spent many, many years on what's called apologetics, which just means defending the faith. It was very important to me to know what I believed, why I believed it, to be able to give an answer. The Bible commands us to, to know what we believe, to be able to give an answer to it. But there were many years where I felt like I was studying apologetics in order to convince myself over and over again that it was real. And there's an aspect that that's still helpful. Our strength is, our faith is strengthened by that. The more we study the historical evidence, and there's all these great books out there like Evidence That Demands a Verdict. When you start to really look at those things, it's really helpful to your faith, um, but only to a certain extent. Because the Christian shouldn't spend his entire life just trying to convince himself that it's real. We have to get to a certain point where we know that it's real, and now we can actually make progress in faith, really get to know who God is and what, is, what does it mean for our life. And I, I started noticing myself the last couple of years that apologetics became less important to me, and I didn't really know why at first. Um, but I think it was because I became so convinced of his existence that when I read scripture, I was no longer just trying to find the verses that could defeat arguments. I was no longer trying to find verses just to define my theology and to be able to argue against other theologies. I was coming to scripture with just this sense of what, what does this mean for me as a Christian? Who, who is this God that I'm reading about? Um, and so there's this thing in Hebrews where the writer of Hebrews says we need to move beyond the milk and get into the meat of things. And this week I realized that in a sense, Apologetics is kind of like milk. And as long as all we're doing is trying to convince ourselves over and over again, and so it's like all we're doing with the resurrection is looking up the evidence of it to show that it proves who He is and all that, as long as we're stuck there, we're still feeding on milk. And we haven't actually progressed into what is the, the deeper meaning of this. And so 
Why must he rise? Not just did he rise, but he had to rise. Why is that, and what does it mean? And so think through this with me for a second, because here's one of the ways someone might answer this. Well, he had to rise because it was prophesied. But it goes further than that, because God doesn't just prophesy things in order to fulfill them. God doesn't just say something in advance so that he can then do it and prove that that's who he is. He does do that. He does say, Behold, I tell you things in advance so that when it happens, you'll know that I'm the Lord. But that isn't the reason behind everything. He doesn't just say, I'm going to send my Messiah so that he can send him, and then we believe. It, there's a reason behind all of it. And so um, he didn't just have to raise because it was prophesied. He didn't just have to die because it was prophesied. There are, are greater meanings than that. And so I want to start that discussion today, but I feel like even in my own walk, I've barely scratched the surface of it. And I feel like 10 years from now, 20 years from now, I'm going to be discovering more and more what this means. Um, but hopefully this morning we can get beyond drinking just milk and maybe we'll have, I don't know, yogurt. And 10 years from now, maybe we'll have meat on this. So to, to get our minds into understanding this a little bit, we could do a little bit of review. Um, two weeks ago, we talked about the necessity of the crucifixion and the fact that we're sinners. Um, and I want to go back there for a second because it's important to know what sin does to us in order to understand the resurrection's part in salvation. So just to review, we're going to be in Romans a little bit. So if you want to turn to Romans, you can. We're going to be starting in Romans 2. I'm just going to read a couple of different verses throughout Romans to kind of get our mind into the right place. Um, in Romans 2, starting in verse 6, it says, Who, or God, will render to each person according to his deeds? To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also the Greek, for there's no partiality with God. So we don't often talk about this, but there is a works-based aspect to salvation. Everyone who is good enough and perfect would get to heaven on their own works. That's what it's saying. And everyone who's not won't. This is the works-based aspect of salvation. But if you go down to Romans 3 verse 10, he says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. So the point he's making is, first get into our head the idea that if we could be good enough and perfect enough and never sin, we would not have the judgment and the wrath of God upon us, we would have life. We'd have eternal life. But the reality is none of us are good enough. So that's what Romans is saying. Um, if, if it was possible for us to live perfectly, we could get eternal life based on our works. But it's not possible. There's none who does it. So what he's doing in Romans, he's, he's, he's getting the church to recognize that the Jews aren't better than the Greeks. We're all, we all kind of come to God on the same terms of none of us have made it on our own. 
And that's why down in verse in, in Romans 3, verse 21, he starts to say, now, now apart from the law, righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith. So then what he goes into explaining is that, so even we can't come to God based on works because none of us would make it. And that's why now we have salvation apart from all of that, just based on faith. So we got to talk about what that, what that means, though. By putting faith in God, what is that done? How do we get righteousness from that? So there are basically two things that have happened because of sin. There, there is guilt. We have the guilt. We are, we are guilty for our sin. The sins we commit, we are guilty of them. So there's guilt attached to sin. And there's death. So we're not just guilty because of sin. We're also dead because of sin before we have faith in Christ. And we see this all over the place in the Bible. Psalm 51, I was brought forth in iniquity. Ephesians 2, by nature we are children of wrath. Colossians 2.13, you were dead in your sins. So there's, there's these two different aspects of, of what happens when we sin. Number one, legally we're guilty. There's a price to pay. We're guilty. And number two, we're spiritually dead. And so we saw... A couple weeks back, the, the cross pays for the guilt. It atones for our sins. We understand that. We talk about that a lot, that Christ paid the price for us so that we're no longer guilty. But if that's all that happened and Christ never rose, it wouldn't be enough. And I know that sounds very bold, but I'm going to prove it to you. Remember, legally guilty, spiritually dead. So through faith, because of the cross, we're legally forgiven. The debt is paid, but we're still spiritually dead. We must be made alive. We must be given new life. And this must happen. And John's been saying this the whole time. John 1, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 3, Jesus says, we must be born again. John 10, I came that you might have life. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. John 20, we'll see this next week probably, John 20, 31. I've written these things so you can believe, and that believing you may have life in His name. So we get more than just forgiveness. We get new life. So faith does something legally, and it does something spiritually for us. Legally, according to the law, we're sinners, and there's a price to pay. We've been forgiven of that because of the cross. Christ paid the sins. And spiritually, we are given new life. Now, these things happen at the same time. It's seamless for us. It's not like there's two different faiths we have to have. to make. It, it happens at the same time, but it's important to see them as separately in order to see why the resurrection is important, why He must raise, because we must have new life. And so what I'm trying to say with all this is, without the resurrection, there's no new life. There is no born again there is no new creation. If all faith did was forgive us, but it didn't give us new life, we'd still be spiritually dead. And if Christ hadn't raised, that's exactly where we'd be. He couldn't give anyone new life if he was still dead. That's why I said before that if faith only forgives, it's not enough. So now, here's the main point. The Bible tells us this in a different way. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, 
Our preaching is in vain, and your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified that God raised Christ, whom he did, whom he did not raise if, there, if the dead aren't raised. For if the dead aren't raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men to be the most pitied. And so this is why he had to raise. We had to have new life. We were dead in our sins. We had to be born again. What would it mean if Christ hadn't raised? The only reason anybody dies and stays dead is because of sin. That's what Romans 2 is saying to us. If it was possible to, to live a perfect life, you wouldn't have these consequences. So Jesus died in order to pay our sins, but death couldn't keep him dead because it had no power over him. If he had stayed dead, think of what that would mean. It would mean that death did have power over him, which it could only do if he had sin. And if he had sin, then he couldn't have paid our price on the cross. It would have been paying his own price on the cross. And then all that he said was untrue. And so now our faith is worthless. But the fact is, he did raise. And because he rose, he can give us new life. There was no way to keep him dead because he is God and sin has no power over him. He was perfect and death has no power over him. He endured suffering. He endured death on our behalf, but it could not keep him dead because he's God. And the fact that he rose, he must raise. He, there was no way he couldn't raise. He had to raise because of all that it would mean if he didn't. <laughs> he had to raise because he is God. He is perfect and the power in his name gives us new life. So if we think about all that would it would imply if he hadn't been raised, think of all we've gained because he's raised. The opposite of all these things is true. So we can read 1 Corinthians backwards and we can say that if we have hoped in Christ in this life, we are of all men to be the most esteemed. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have not perished. If Christ has been raised, our faith is not worthless. We are no longer dead in our sins. So it's all backwards because of the reality that he did raise. And so the meaning of the resurrection is so much more than just proving that Christianity is the right religion. It's, it's about understanding that if he hadn't risen, we would not have new life. And if we did not have new life, we'd still be dead in our sins. And the payment of those sins wouldn't be enough to give us new life. And so the crucifixion and the resurrection are equally important. Christ did both of those things to pay the price for our sin and to give us new life. We couldn't have had new life if we still had to pay the prices of our sins. And we couldn't experience the joy of being paid in full if we were still dead in our sins. So they had to both happen in order for us to have this life we have in Christ that we get to live every day where he says in John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God. We get to, to know him and experience him daily because of both these things, because of Christ's death and his resurrection. We have, our old man is dead and we've been given new life. We have been, been born again, been given, we're a new creation now. That's the, that's the meaning, part of it, a small part of it.
And hopefully as the years go by and we keep knowing God, we're going to understand this deeper and, and understand what new life actually means and, and, and what that, you know. I just feel like even looking at the verses here, this is tremendous and powerful stuff, but it's like only the surface still. You know, this whole thing about what is new life and what does it mean to live for Him. Um, I do know that when we get into Romans, we'll read Romans 6 and 7 and 8. We're going to get a much bigger picture of of the, what it means to be dead to sin, what it means to be alive to God. And, and it, it just goes on from there. That there's so much we can learn here. But for now, for today, for this introduction to this John chapter 20, I'll just end with that. The, the real meaning of the resurrection is that if, if he had not raised, there would be no new life. There would be no born again. There would be no new creation. So let's pray. Thank you, Father, for, um, for giving us new life, for not just paying for the sins of ours, but also giving us new life. Both things we're totally unworthy of. But without both these things, we could not possibly know you. And the fact that we can know you, it, it's free to us, but it costs you so much. And so we don't take it for granted. We thank you so much that Christ could not stay dead because he is God, that he could not, that death had no power over him. And I thank you that because he is alive, he has the power to give us this newness of life that we seek, that we long for. So we ask that as we live out today and live out this week, that we would live in, in, conscience, um, in conscious understanding that our old man is dead and that our new man is alive in Christ. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.